The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are so full of kindness to be the God that you are holy and lifted up and yet to be the one who pursued us and caught us and saved us in love. That's who you are. You are high and you are low. You are almighty and you are tender. You are holy love. And we just sit and say thank you. Thank you for being who you are and thank you for being that towards us. And then we ask because you ask us to ask. We ask you to show us still more of yourself and to do so this morning through the passage in front of us. Will you please open up your word, show us and, and convince us of more of you and draw us on with that. Would you build and mature your church? Will you draw others to you, showing yourself beautiful? Please make the word clear here this morning and help our hearts to focus and understand you. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, and we noted that while we live here in this world, we are to conduct ourselves in the fear of God. That was the command in the verse, so that's kind of where some of the weight fell as we then gave attention to this important idea of the fear of the Lord, what it is and what it isn't. And in the end, at the heart of the concept, it's about careful, thoughtful attention to, respect of, reverence of, God as God, such that he then becomes what controls our thoughts and our hearts and our walk in life. And as we consider this, it is sobering, but it is also meant to be. It's given to us to be a relief because the Bible presents to us the God who is good and calls us to fear him instead of fearing anything else here in the world. We fear God and nothing and no one else. That's a relief. That's good. That was the command. And while it was about fear, we also noted, you'll recall, that it sat in a context that assumed we'd be calling on God as our Father, assumed we'd be praying to him, and that assumed that he's eager to hear, that he has a heart that is, that is ready to hear us and ready to help us. And knowing that, that he's a Father who wants us to come and that He's eager to help, and that we are more in need of help perhaps than we realize. But seeing him as a father who wants to help, we are drawn to him. It moves us to call out to him praying. And that's the direction that we're kind of going to pivot towards again this morning as we move into verses 18 and following. Now, I've split this into two weeks, and depending on what your English translation decides to do here, there's going to be some different punctuation that separates this all into some bite-sized pieces. But really, last week and this week, it's all one gigantic sentence with one large thought. 
the God who is for us. The God who is for us, who is to be feared, as we saw last week, and just a bit this week, and who is the object of our faith and our hope. We fear him so we don't presume upon him or use him when we pray. And we have faith in him and we trust him and we hope in him and so we are inclined to call out to him and to come to him with our need and ask for help. And, and God through Peter is going to press that point home for us this morning in, in verses 18 and following. And he's going to do it in a particular way that, that if we see it, if, if we have eyes to see it, it'll, it'll feel like something familiar. We, we all are very touched by discovering someone's been thinking about us. When, you, when you're just walking through life and somebody stops by your house with a plate of cookies out of the blue, you say, oh, how kind, thank you. And you realize they were thinking about you, they had some thought when they, when they baked the cookies, and they drove over to your house. There's, there's like some, some back thought. They were thinking about you and caring for you before you realized it. And when you realize that, it touches you. And it somehow knits you together with that person. That dynamic is at work in this passage. As God, through Peter, is going to show us, I've been thinking about you for a long, 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 long long time to love you and do you good. Come to me. I'm a father to you. That's how this passage works today. There's, there's lots of details and lots of twists and turns, but that's how it works. So keep that in mind as we work through the passage. I'm going to begin reading it, starting with last week's verse 17, the beginning of the long sentence, and then we'll draw two observations from 18 and following. So, here we are, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. It's the passage this morning. Two observations. Here's the first. God has set us free from our former lives at great cost. God has set us free from our former lives at great cost. Verse 18 is, as I said, a continuation on from verse 17 with the command to Christians to conduct yourselves now with the fear of the Lord, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, or some translations say redeemed, and that's probably the word that we more often use, or at least think of. We, we quote that word, we, we put it in songs, and in effect, the word redeemed, in a lot of people's minds, has kind of taken on a, a generic salvation sort of sense, 
kind of equivalent almost to the word saved. I've been saved, I've been redeemed, they're kind of interchangeable, right? In a way, but not quite. It's worth thinking about this word redeemed or ransomed for, for just a minute because it reveals a little bit to us. The word emerges from the context of bondage of some sort, a captivity, even slavery, where you're trapped and under obligation to a captor or even a master. And you don't just decide one day to go free, you know, that this is terrible, I'm done with this, I'm out of here. No, you can't. You're stuck. That's our universal predicament. The Bible's clear. We were born and then we grow up in spiritual bondage, by which the Bible in general means that apart from Christ, we have a sin nature that is too strong for us. And like a chain holds us, it binds us, and we can't get away. And it keeps pulling us back. We keep getting yanked back to sin. It draws us into sin. We can't get away. And here, this verse is actually emphasizing one particular aspect of that larger general concept, talking about how apart from Christ, people are bound to, trapped in sinful lifestyles and ways of living. It's true for all people apart from Christ, and especially true for Peter's Gentile audience, a people like probably all of, if not all, almost all of us, Gentiles, growing up in a, a, a world, in a culture that at every level is not based on God's good law. As he puts it, they and we were trapped in futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Non-biblical ways of life, non-biblical lifestyles, behaviors, habits, pursuits, longings, aspirations, practices, whatever words you could put there, if you think about all that's building together, we might sometimes call that culture. All the ways the world lives by nature, in its own wisdom, and then passes on down to the children of the world as they grow up under its influence. And the parents and teachers and coaches, and counselors, and institutions, and media of the world pass all of this on down to the next generation, and then to the next, saying to them, here, here's your world. Here's what it is, here's what it looks like, here's how it works, and here's how you work in it. Here's how you should live, here's what you should pursue, here's how you do it. You want to go about it like this, and, and these are the best things we have to offer, and you can attain them this way, and you can avoid them in this way. All of that here in the world, how the world thinks, what it should live for, gets passed on, and children receive it. They must. There is no other option. And even if you think about so-called countercultures that reject the majority opinion, they're, they're still this. They're just a second set of ways, an alternative. And if you have a very diverse culture like the United States, the more diverse the culture, the more diverse the ways that are futile. 
all kinds of different options. And, and in, in a place like this country, you may grow up with a certain ethnic background or a certain religious background or a certain economic status or certain history to your people or peoples that, that bend you in a certain way. And we've got lots of different flavors of this, all kinds of different variety. Still all ways of the world. Passed on, and so kids receive it all in one flavor or the other, and they order their lives around this heritage that's bequeathed to them passed on. And so we can look around at the United States today. Are there good things about this country? Oh, sure. I'm not sure I want to live anywhere else. I like to visit a lot of places. I'm not sure I want to live anywhere else. However, whatever version of the American dream we are pursuing these days, Whatever pursuit of happiness we are sold to now in our freedom, it is all just some combination of a pursuit of significance and fulfillment offered by the world. That's all that it can be. And so the world with the United States flavor of many different kinds of flavors in the United States. It all is passing along a plan for personal fame and power and wealth and beauty and pleasure and knowledge and community building and activism and family creation and protection and more recently with a heavy emphasis on self-actualization, the idea that if you are authentic with who you think you are at the moment and, and really pursue that hard, then somehow you will be enabled to live at peace with yourself in the pursuit of fame and power and beauty and wealth and significance. In a state of harmony and wholeness, so it is hoped. And so it is handed down and received. And it is all futile, meaningless, The word used here often shows up in the book of Ecclesiastes, so you can feel the thrust of this point in the word. Meaningless, vain, useless, empty, worthless. Hear that and feel it. Don't get angry. But hear that and feel it. The business schools and mentorships can teach you how to make products and money. And healthcare can prolong your life. And if you play your cards just right, we're told, and you can maybe then find some friendships and some family and some pleasure and some entertainment amidst some honest labor and three square meals a day, rinse and repeat for 75 years. But none of that makes a bit of difference in the end. None of it makes a bit of difference at the end of the day when you sit down from your anxious toil and are still at war with yourself, caught on the hamster wheel because you know that if you don't get up and run tomorrow, what you do have will fall apart. And then you're going to step out into a world that is at war with itself. There is so much evil and so much conflict still in the world, though we've been pursuing these ways for generations now. It is all anxious toil, and then you die and face the judgment before the God who is a total stranger to you. And lo and behold, come to find out, 
is your impartial, holy judge. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly futile are all of the ways of the world that the world passes on to the world and commends to its children saying, this is the way you should walk. It's a road that leads to nowhere but frustration and sorrow and rage and anger and pain and confusion, and it's the only world road the world has to walk, which is why you should weep over this rather than be angry, because this is the sorrow of life here on this planet. All people alike are trapped on this road, chained to it. stuck in those ways, and they cannot get out. You too, Christian. You were there too. But from that futility, you were ransomed. You were bought out of that. Bought by God, bought to God, who made you his. And you don't have to live for any one of these cultural perspectives, any one of these feudal ways. You don't have to live for the American dream. You can stand in a third culture alongside of it and say, this is good, this is good, this is good, and that is not. You're free from that. And you can be out of all that the world offers and all of its values and all that it calls you to. You've been redeemed, not with the most valuable of commodities the world knows, not with silver and gold or anything that's here, but as verse 19 puts it, with the precious blood of Christ. Blood shed as if Jesus was an Old Testament sacrificial lamb. Pure, spotless, without blemish. That's what the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be, that that atoned for sin because they were all foreshadowing what Jesus would one day be, perfect and sinless, sacrificed in your place. A substitute is a payment for you to set you free from the bondage you were stuck in. And we usually think of bondage in the, the, in the sense of like a sin payment that sets me free from sin's penalty. And it's clearly alluded to. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's touched on right here. It comes up numerous times in the rest of First Peter. The idea of Jesus as the pure, spotless lamb substituted in my place to pay for my penalty and then giving to me his purity, his spotlessness. That's, that's clearly here, for sure. But there's also this aspect that we've just seen here of this bondage to lifestyle. When Christ died for you, he sets you free from the penalty of sin and from the bondage of sin so that you could walk in a different way. Not in those few ways. You could walk in a different life, a different path with him. So for just a second, let's think about this just a little more specifically. It's like, it's like you're a person every moment of every day place at a fork in the road, and you're right there at the fork every moment of every day, and one is the, the, the way of the world, and one is the way of the Lord, and you used to be chained. 
Here's my first dog reference. Some of you know that I recently got a dog. You walk a dog, or the dog walks you. When you walk a dog, you decide where you go, and you get a chain that tells the dog, nope, we're going this way. We all were chained at the fork. No, we're going this way. No, we're going this way. Now, though, you stand at the fork in the road, and the chain's been cut. Not by you. By God. And you're no longer just a beast with a mind of instinct. You've got a mind that's awake and alert and sees and knows. By the work of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and you see these paths, both of them. And you see along one path of the ways of the world all of its promises and its threats, some of which it can deliver on. The world can deliver to you blessings for following it, and it can punish you for not. And you see that now clearly. And you have a mind by the Spirit of God to see and understand all the threats and promises on God's path, and he delivers on every single one of them. You have a mind that is free and you can see. And then as the Old Testament promise of the glory of the new covenant, the Spirit lives in you to move you to follow his decrees. You are now inclined in a certain way. You are differently bent, set free to walk in newness of life. It isn't automatic. It's a command. But this is what we have to keep in mind, knowing this. That's where the verse begins. You, you live with the fear of the Lord. You conduct yourselves in pursuit of him, knowing that I'm free now. I'm free from that, and I'm free to him. Knowing that. Keeping that in mind. Walk with the Lord. Careful, holy. This is you, Christian, under new management. And you are to be conscious of that. At every fork in the road, in every moment of every day, there is still in front of you a futile path that you do not have to walk. So do not. Walk in newness of life. Walk with him. And to incline you to walk with him and to incline you to call out to him for help in your moments of need, we have a second observation. God wants you to see something about how thoughtful he's been for you, how good he is for you. The second point. Here it is. God's salvation work is particularly planned to fasten us to him. God's salvation work is particularly planned to fasten us to him. So here's what I'm getting at, and I'm going to make this clear because there are so many phrases here in the next two verses that it would be easy, I'm going to say at the end, easy to lose the forest for the trees. So what what I want you to keep in mind is the person who brings you the cookies and you see how thoughtful they were, the goal is not that you have your sweet tooth satisfied. 
The goal is that you like them. That's why they brought you cookies. In, in my example. That's what's going on here. God's going to do some things, the ultimate goal of which is for you to like him. To be fastened to him, to draw up near to him and see how good he is for you, how thoughtful he is for you, how caring he is for you, to see his love and its, and its breadth for you. His salvation work is particularly planned to fasten you to him. That's where we're going. So verse 19 mentions Christ, who is then referred to in verses 20 and 21 with the pronouns he and him, while throughout there, the word God refers specifically to God the Father. This is usually the case in the Bible when discussing the three distinct persons of the one triune God. We saw this back in verses 1 and 2 in the very beginning of the book, where all three persons of the Trinity are involved in different aspects of the one work of salvation. And as usually the case, the word God refers to God the Father, who exercises a certain bit of headship in the relationship within the Trinity. There is order in the Trinity, not, not in value. There's not like, you know, God and God, lesser God. No, equal in value, equal in being, but different in role. And the Father, the reason he's called the Father, not the Son, is the Father exercises headship. The Son is beneath the Father. Does what the Father sends him to do. So in these verses, God is referring to God the Father, and God the Son, Christ, is he or him. We've got to keep that in mind as we work through these verses to keep straight who's doing what. And to notice that God is actually active to draw us to him through Christ. So he, that is Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, it says. You'll recall we dealt with this word foreknown back in verse 2, where we considered some of the common misunderstandings about God's foreknowledge, including the idea that foreknowledge is somehow about God looking ahead in time, sort of, to see what people will do, and then kind of winding backwards and, and then writing that into existence based on what they would do. That's not what the word means, which is abundantly clear when, like in our verse here, we see God's foreknowledge in relation to Christ, sacrificed like a spotless lamb. God did not, of course, just look ahead and discover that Jesus would be crucified, and then having that information wind backwards and create a salvation plan with Jesus at the heart of it. Not how it worked, of course. To say that God foreknows something or someone is to say that God all by himself in his divine freedom as the sovereign one is actively deciding about and then carrying out his own intentions about his plans about something or someone. God counsels himself about what God wants to do, and then God gives God a plan, and then God executes it. That's what it means to be God. So here it says, he foreknew Christ before the foundation of the world, and that means that God the Father had an absolutely certain plan about God the Son, Christ, 
before anything created was created. Before there was anything other than God, God himself decreed, that is, decided and spoke into existence, that one day into the creation, Christ would come and take on flesh, become a man and go to the cross to die and pour out this precious blood. That was the plan of God from eternity past. And as verses 10 to 12, we saw this before, point out, God alluded to that. He hinted at it in different times in the Old Testament, but it never came about until it finally was kicked into motion in these last times. The final period of the plan came about. And the plan was revealed. It says Christ was made manifest by God. He was made known in his birth, in the angelic announcement, the shepherds for sure, also in his ministry for years as he showed his divine nature and power and authority in the cross itself as Jesus was lifted up for all to see that all happened. Eternity's plan hatched in the mind of God in heaven, come down to earth dwelling in a particular body in a particular place at a particular time for a particular people for a particular purpose. The end of verse 20. This was for your sake. That's a very loaded little phrase. Loaded with meaning and loaded with love because of the meaning. Verse 21 takes that little phrase and fleshes it all out. For your sake, for you, for whom? 21. For you, who through him, through Christ, are believers in God. He's talking about Christians. This was for you, for your sake. You should read this, Christian, and sense a particular kindness of God, a, a tenderness towards you, a seeking you out. He went about this for your sake. If you're a believer in God, if you one day become a believer in God, in the sense that this passage means, then you can sit here and say, what I'm reading about here was for me. For me. For us. Done with you in mind. It's always been about you, with you in mind. Now there are many people in the world, perhaps most people in the world, who would say they believe in God. And of course they mean lots of different things by that. But what this is about is the God of the Bible, revealed by the Bible, and to believe in him is to understand who he is according to the Bible. Intellectually to get that and then to agree with it mentally and then beyond just understanding it and agreeing with, volitionally in your will to give yourself to it. Happily to trust him, to depend upon him alone for forgiveness and eternal life. That's believe in God and the only legitimate path to belief in God 
is through Christ. There is no other way to know him but through Jesus. Through Christ, you through who him are believers in God. Continue on with the next verse. Continue on in the verse, next phrase. Who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. He raised him from the dead. God raised Christ from the dead and gave Christ glory. This in particular is how God made manifest his plan. I mean, the birth for sure, and the announcement and the ministry and the death for sure. But when he raised Christ from the dead, God placed his vindicating stamp of approval on him and conquered the grave in Christ. And so Christ is the victor over death. He's raised up in the clouds. He ascends into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand in power to reign now. This is the crucified slain lamb who is the Lord, the sovereign head over the church and over all of the earth. God has made this clear. God has manifest who he is in his death, in his resurrection, and in his glorification. Why? That is a massive statement. I mean, if you think, I just kind of like threw out three, four, five, six different sentences about the entire plan of salvation. Eternity past, birth, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension into glory. That is huge. A massive statement about Jesus. For what purpose? Not just to provide forgiveness of sins. Not just to set us free from our former way of life. Those things are true. We just read about one of them for sure. That's true. But that's not the main point. He didn't give you cookies just to satisfy your sweet tooth. There's something else. Look, look right before this phrase. He raised him and gave him glory right before that to make us believers in God. Right after this, end of the verse, so that your faith and hope are in God. God did all of that for your sake, for you, to accomplish the purpose of cinching you up to God the Father. To put it differently, God did all of that to make it sure, certain, clear in your mind, that when he opens up his arms and says, come, you don't say, a holy, terrifying God, Mount Sinai. What am I to do with this? Ah! No. He opens up his arms and says, come, and you say, oh! The one who thought of me and sent Christ for me and killed him and raised him and raised him up to ascend to glory for me to give me faith and hope in you. I see your arms open wide and I come to you as dad and I say, Help! The cookies aren't about the sweet tooth. The cookies are to make you like him. 
to make you trust him, to make you hope in him. And of course, bless God, to forgive you of your sin and give you the ability to walk in newness of life. Yeah, with him. That's the point. The entire story of the entire creation is about a relational separation closed up again to the glory of God for your good. It is not about the small stuff. Sin's a piece of that. Forgiveness is a piece of that. The whole big story is relational alienation closed up again by God for you through the praise of his glorious grace. That's what's going on. That's what he's doing. So that your faith and hope are in God to make you want to come to him, to make you know that he will welcome you, to see him for you. A father who loves you. Vast, wide, long, high, deep love. Holy love. To be feared, he is holy, holy, holy. And he wants you to jump into his lap comfortable because he is your father who loves you with an everlasting love and has drawn you with cords of kindness. Let me say that again to point out what you must see here. Because he loves you with an everlasting love and has drawn you with cords of kindness. I think... Some of us miss something in language like that of this passage because we miss the particularity of it. We have in our minds God and his work as some sort of a storefront. There is a big glass front you can see in, and it's got lots of goods. It's got a sign across the top, and the door is unlocked and open. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the general offer of the gospel for sure. We need to make that completely clear. But we also must be careful not to misunderstand as if that's all there is and that God's sitting at the desk with a magazine and nobody coming in. Nope. The storefront's there, the door's unlocked and open, the sign in the front says, come in and you can see what I've got to offer. Lots of cool stuff. Frankly, it's all free. But God's not passively at the, door, at the desk waiting to see who someone maybe, perhaps may. There is a particularity in this beautiful plan of salvation. When you get the cookies that arrive on your door, you're supposed to realize they thought of me several hours ago when they gathered together the brown sugar and the chocolate chips and hit preheat on the oven. I was in mind. This is very particular a foreknown Savior coming at a specific time for the sake of a foreknown people to make those people believers in God. 
by making manifest to them who this Christ really is. The resurrected victor over death, the Savior who reigns in glory. This all to make it so that your faith and hope are in God, your Father, who did it all. So that your hope is in him and not in everything else that cannot deliver. So that your trust is in him and not everything else that's hollow. So that you'll walk with him and worship him and call on him to help you in your time of need. This is particularly focused, purposeful, and deliberate. God sent Christ for you. For you. From heaven then he came and sought you. To bring you back. To make you a believer. To put your faith and hope in him. What Christians most need to be convinced of then are these twin truths. The Holy One is to be feared. And the Redeeming One is to be trusted and hoped in now during this time of exile. And they both together are one. The Holy One is your Redeemer. The Holy One is for you. Him you should fear. What else is there to fear then? Nothing. Him you should call out to then. What is the chance that He won't help? Nil. This is your Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be his name. Let's pray. Lord, would you cause us to sit in and revel in your particular care and love for us and to know that you've been in pursuit of us that your eye is on us, that we are safe in your hand even now. Open our eyes and cause us to behold you, Father. In all of your glory, all of your might, all of your omnipotence, and all of your tender nearness and sweetness beckoning us to come climb in your lap and feel your heartbeat. It is the best thing in the world to have a father who is omnipotent and who is sweet and for us. Who has done all of this to incline us to you. Thank you. Will you show us yourself? Show us that, please. And move us then to follow you as you walk the path of righteousness, and live in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 